Hello, this Bible teaching program, which is called Search for Truth, is listened to by people from many different cultures and nationalities throughout the world. And it's cultural differences which feature in part of Brian's talk today, which he's called The Shame of Being Known. It's a fact that Jesus knows all our hearts and he transcends cultural differences and cultural divides. Jesus came not to judge the world, but that all people might be saved through him. We read that in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 47. The Gospel, or good news, is for all people, and the creed and the colour and the name doesn't matter. And here's Brian to tell us more. Thanks, John. Some cultures are described as guilt cultures, whereas others are spoken of as shame cultures. In either kind of culture, if I believe I'm guilty and society believes I'm guilty, then I'm in big trouble and I'll be punished. On the other hand, if I believe I'm not guilty, and so does society, then there's no problem. Where it gets interesting is when I believe something different about myself from what society thinks of me. Or more to the point, perhaps, their view of me is different from how I view myself. Let's suppose I live in a guilt culture and society doesn't believe I'm guilty, but I believe I'm guilty. In that case, I can't live with myself. In a guilt culture, it's what I believe about myself that controls my response. I can't cope with believing I'm guilty, irrespective of what others believe about me. Sometimes, someone who's been found not guilty in a court of law will later, quite voluntarily, make a confession to the police that they really did commit the crime that they were supposedly previously accused of. They just couldn't live with the personal knowledge of their guilt. But it's the opposite way around in a shame culture. There, it doesn't matter if I believe in my innocence, because as long as society believes I'm guilty, I simply can't live with the shame that brings. In a shame culture, it's what society believes about me that controls my response. I can't cope with the shame of them thinking I'm guilty, irrespective of whether I am or not. Sometimes in such a culture, the mere shameful suspicion of others thinking that a person is guilty is sufficient for that person to feel like life is no longer worth living. At a purely personal level, as opposed to the cultural level, I think we can all relate to that last idea. We're all concerned about what others know and think about us. That's why we have secrets and, yet, at the same time, feel a need to share them in a controlled way. A few years ago, a man had an idea. He decided to start a blog intended to be a temporary community art project in which individuals would mail postcards on which was written just one secret which they hadn't told to anyone. This blog is now an online community with over 80,000 members. Those with secrets seem to feel the need to tell them to somebody, but only in a safe or controlled way because being truly known outside of that brings fear. Being open, being known, opens us up to exposure. And if we're exposed, 
we risk being rejected. Normally, we prefer to keep hidden from others whatever shameful secrets lurk in the dark recesses of our souls. We hide our secrets and put on our public face, hoping that what we really are will never be seen or known by anyone else. But even deeper down, secure behind the protection of anonymity perhaps, we also long for the relief of unburdening. Given this fear of being known, the invitation, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done, might have been heard more like an accusation than an invitation. Yet this invitation, given by an unnamed Samaritan woman in the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, is an invitation to see and to be seen by someone who's told her all that she'd done. That someone was Jesus. Now, his knowledge didn't reject or destroy this relationship. The knowledge of her, which Jesus demonstrated, had obviously restored her sense of worth, judging by her elated response. We're only given a few details about this woman. She was a Samaritan, a long-despised ethnic group. We're told that she'd had five husbands and was currently living with a man to whom she wasn't married. It could well be that this is the source of her shame. Women in the ancient world derived their social standing as well as their economic viability from their husbands. With neither husband nor male child, a woman such as this was dependent on society that often abandoned them. It's often thought this woman was coming to draw water when no other women were around so that she could hide her shame. This is because it's reckoned unlikely that she'd outlived five men, more likely that they'd chosen to use her and then abandon her. In that place where she lived, hers is an open secret, but still one that's too painful to sit comfortably with out in the open. Yet in her brief encounter with a stranger who asks her to give him a drink, her secrets are exposed but not for the sake of shaming her or exposing what she feared the most. The stranger by the well at no point invites repentance, nor for that matter does he speak of sin at all. That would indicate to me that this woman already had the right attitude towards her past life. Sir, I can see you are a prophet, she said, which is interesting because Jesus hadn't told her future, which is a thing many would equate with prophecy. In fact, he'd actually told her past. You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. John chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. From Jesus' knowledge of her shameful personal life, the woman at the well concluded that Jesus was nothing less than a prophet. As the conversation continued, she began to wonder if Jesus wasn't in fact more than just any prophet, but the very one the Old Testament promised. We said it's immediately after Jesus describes her past that she says, I see that you are a prophet. She sees because Jesus has seen her, seen her past pain. When he speaks knowingly and compassionately of her past, she realises She's in the presence of a prophet. 
She leaves her water pot, runs into her city and invites all the townspeople to come see a man who told me all the things I have done. Come see a man who told me all the things I have done becomes an invitation to be welcomed into living life in the open. Jesus knows the most intimate details of our life, both our guilt and shame and all our secrets. But from the example of her case, we see that that needn't make us feel afraid or ashamed. That's because his knowledge brings a sense of worth, because it conveys his acceptance. It's interesting that before John in his gospel tells us of the Lord's insight into this woman's past, he also records Jesus' insight into the life of two men. The first is someone called Nathaniel. We read in John chapter 1, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. So Jesus first revealed what was in Nathanael's heart and so exposed his character. And this led to the further revelation to Nathanael that the one who could do this was the long-awaited Messiah. Philip had been right after all. This is evidence to support what we're told in the next chapter. John chapter 2.24, But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Next up is a man called Nicodemus. He arrives on the scene straight after our being told that Jesus knows us and all that's in us. John chapter 3 verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. At first, it seems like Jesus is answering a question that's never been asked. But of course, this is the very matter that's been playing on Nicodemus' mind. And so the stage is set for the question about how we may be born again to be answered by one of the most well-loved of all Bible verses, John chapter 3 and verse 16, which tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. By this means, we can know for certain that we are no longer guilty before God because our sins are now forgiven and our worrying about being shamefully exposed is also dealt with as we, through faith, are fitted for heaven and become acceptable to God through being found in Christ by faith alone. For those in either a guilt or a shame culture, this is good news indeed.
So many thanks for your talk today, Brian. There's a transcript book of all the talks in this series, and you can download one by going to churchesofgod.info forward slash media. On the other hand, you can write to us and request a hard copy book be posted out to you. Just ask for the title, It's Not Fake News. And don't forget to include your own personal, uh, personal postal address so we know where to send it. You can use email or the post, and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Now, you may be interested to know that if you go to the website I just mentioned, at churchesofgod.info forward slash media. You can listen again to many of these broadcasts off air by audio, podcast or MP3 versions. So why not have a go? See what you can find to enjoy. That's almost it for today. So many thanks for your company and I hope you enjoyed today's study. Next week our talk is called Four Things God Wants You to Know. And it's the final talk in this series, so I'd be delighted if you could join us. But for now, it's goodbye and very best wishes from our Bible teacher, Brian, our producer, David, our singers and me, John. So see you again soon. And in the meantime, we wish you God's richest blessings. Bye.